1: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. John Kennedy remains one of the most beguiling of all the American presidents, because of what he represents, but also because of what he had the potential to become. As Thurston Clark writes in the preface to his new biography More than most presidents, more than most middle aged men, he was a work in progress, a moving target for anyone trying to capture him on a canvas or in prose. Today, I'm going to be talking today with Thurston Clark about his impressions of the 35th president of the United States, as well as his new book entitled JFK's Last Hundred Days, An Intimate Portrait of a Great President. Hi, Thurston. Thank you so much for joining us today for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could kick things off just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm, uh, I've written
0: about 11 books. I started um, being a travel writer, and I also did some uh, what I call microhistory. I did a book about the King David Hotel explosion. I uh, wrote that back in 19, uh, 1980. Uh, recently, I've uh, been doing mostly um, history instead of travel. Uh, I've done uh, two other books about the Kennedy family, and I did a book about the Pearl Harbor attack. that was published on the 50th anniversary in 1991. <laughs>
1: So what drew you to JFK as a biographical subject and to this period of his life in particular?
0: Well, the to, driven to JFK was that I was in the, the, I am in the baby boom generation. I was 17 when he was assassinated. Um, I was, uh, after uh, JFK, I was very involved in the civil rights movement in the South. Um, so there was that. I first wrote about his inaugural address after hearing George uh, W. Bush's inaugural address. Um, and uh, which wasn't, of course, was nowhere near as stirring. And that gave me the idea of writing a book about how the inaugural address was, um, put together and what part Kennedy had in it. Uh, after that, I wrote a a book about Bobby Kennedy's 1968 campaign. And this is this recent, my recent book, The JFK's Last Hundred Days, is the kind of third and last in that uh, trilogy. Um, I'm, I'm kind of moving on now. Um, as for the Hundred Days, I knew that there were uh, quite a few things uh, that had happened. I mean, I knew about the, uh, the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which was the first treaty to limit nuclear weapons since the beginning of the Cold War, and I knew that that had been uh, signed. Then, but I didn't realize how much else was going on until I began to do some preliminary research, and that's what sold me on doing the book. Uh, I found out that uh, at the time Kennedy had also was also trying to get a civil rights bill through Congress. Uh, and there was what I call a kind of uh, the forgotten detente of John F. Kennedy, which was picked, uh, really kicked off by the Ban Treaty, uh, but it involved a whole bunch of other things that went on in the last hundred days uh, that led um, a number of people to believe, most, and in fact, a lot of people, are UN ambassadors and others, to believe that uh, we might be seeing um, what Sir Alec Douglas Hume, the Foreign Secretary of Great Britain, called the beginning of the end of the Cold War.
1: So, what sources were most helpful to you in writing this? What was helpful to me? What what sources?
0: Well, there are you. You would be surprised that there actually is new material that's come out about Kennedy in the last couple of years. I would say the most helpful sources, and also new sources, were the um, tapes that he made in the Oval Office in the Cabinet Room. Um, from 1962 until uh, his death in uh, November of 63, um, other presidents have taped, but uh, Kennedy, um, unlike Nixon, who just let the machine run on and on and on, Kennedy only activated uh, these secret buttons that he had hidden under the desk when he thought something uh, historically important or something politically noteworthy was happening. Um, the reason he did this was that he was uh, taping for two reasons. Um, uh, most importantly for him was that uh, he wanted to use this in his um, memoirs uh kennedy he in in, in in was a very competitive man and very keen on having a, a, a play, being remembered as a great president and he thought part of that was writing great presidential memoirs. Uh, and so he would be the only one that would have this material, the actual conversations. He knew that his advisor, Arthur Schlesinger, who had won a Pulitzer Prize in history, would probably write about his administration and probably also Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter and close advisor. But he wanted to be able to um, to really beat them to the punch. Uh, and have material they didn't have. And so he kept this taping system as secret from everyone except one or two very close advisors and his secretary. Uh, the other reason he wanted to tape was that he was upset that after the botched um, Bay of Pigs uh, operation, the attempt to topple Castro in 1961, that was planned by Eisenhower, uh, President Eisenhower, but approved by Kennedy, he was afraid that. Uh, what was going to happen? Well, what happened after that was that the, a lot of the advisers, his advisers, who had recommended going ahead with the operation, suddenly began to announce that actually they had counselled him to, to, to be more cautious and not to go right ahead. And so he wanted to have people on the record so they couldn't backtrack as they had after the after the Bay of Pigs. Now the material from the tapes. Has been released slowly over the last, you know, I'd say ten years or so by the Kennedy Library, but only in the last couple of years did they finally release the tapes of the last six months, uh, and it's fascinating, uh, particularly the tapes of Kennedy talking to uh, uh, Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko, uh, and also Soviet uh, Ambassador to the to Washington uh, um, uh, Dobrynin. And in both cases, the Soviets are pushing him for more agreements, um, and pushing this détente. And it's just—it's fascinating to hear the back and forth. And this is new information. So, first of all, there are these tapes, and the second thing that's new that's, uh, is that um, some of the material that's been kind of tied up by the Kennedy Library has been released, among them Jackie Kennedy's oral history, which wasn't supposed to be released for another 25 years or so. Caroline Kennedy um, uh, allowed it to be released and published. Uh, Ted Sorensen, who has uh, recently died, also published his memoirs with a lot of new material. So there was a lot for me to work with that hadn't uh, yet been on the record. And also I can say that the oral histories in the Kennedy Library, there are over 500 of them. They're so extensive that... um, you don't necessarily that some of the material has not been uh, has has not been published before not been not been referred to used in a biography or a, a history mm-hmm.
1: So the book's subtitle is um, An Intimate Portrait of a Great President. So I'm assuming that you think that JFK was a great president, but
0: how would you... Well, that's the British subtitle, yeah. (laughs) I actually, the American subtitle talks about the emergence of a great president, which I think is a bit more accurate. And my position was that during these 100 days, um, we could see what kind of a president Kennedy was becoming, what kind of a president he was going to be, had he lived, uh, you see, Kennedy was a, a man who was constantly more than most middle-aged men, more than most presidents. It's uh, kind of a moving target. He was changing all the time. Um, he was revising his positions. He was um, even at, even when he was in in, in, a, in office. And so, if you wanted to see uh, who he would have been and the kind of man he would have been, I think you have to look at these last hundred days. Um, even more to the point, uh, during the last hundred days, Kennedy had finally come to grips and was finally trying to uh, resolve and solve uh, the two really great threats to the United States and to the world. The first, uh, the first was the United States and to the world, which was of course the danger of nuclear war. We'd almost had a nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis in '62. And the second, in the United States, was the danger of racial conflict. And uh, finally, in 1963, after being very timid about civil rights, he sent a civil rights bill to Congress in the summer of 63, and also in the summer of 63, uh, began, uh, was the one who called, unilaterally called off American nuclear testing and sent negotiators to Moscow to negotiate a, uh, a treaty banning nuclear testing, which resulted in the limited test ban treaty. So this was this was stuff that was all happening in his last hundred days. Um, and so I say in the book, um, of course, we can't tell, say for sure uh, that Kennedy would have been a great president or what he would have done. But what we can say is what he intended to do. And he intended um, to settle the Cold War. Um, he was on his way to doing that. We few people know now. They're quite surprised when I tell them that in the at a the U, in the UN General Assembly in September of '63, Kennedy um, offered to call off the race to the moon with the Soviet Union and to send American and Soviet cosmonauts together um, to the moon. Um, which was part of his detente, which was part of this detente. I mean, it was a it was quite a, quite a, quite a thing, and quite surprising because we always think of Kennedy as being behind the space race. But if there was going to be a detente, if the Cold War was going to be over, what was the point of wasting a lot of money to beat the Soviets to the moon when a joint mission could kind of symbolize, uh, you know, the two countries? Um uh, uh emerging detente uh Kennedy also planned to go to Moscow in the winter of sixty four for another summit with Khrushchev so there when I say the emergence of a great president um the, you could see the outlines of what he was going to do um He also took a number of steps during this period to uh several steps to reduce American involvement in Vietnam, specifically, he announced the withdrawal of a thousand advisors with a view to Withdrawing all of them by the end of sixty-five, um, so that's where that—that—that's that, what I, you know, saying. I'd say he wasn't a great president at the time he was assassinated, but I believe that he—that all of the pieces were in place, and uh, he intended to solve these problems and to become a great president. And given the fact of his life, of, uh, of uh, what he'd accomplished, the first. Catholic to be elected to the White House, the youngest man ever elected President in the United States, a war hero in World War II who had uh, had to had failed several uh, physical tests for the for the armed forces and finally really just uh, kind of lobbied and pushed his way into the Navy and then asked for a combat position. All of this uh, speaks the fact that Kennedy was somebody who usually accomplished what he set out to accomplish. And so I think the odds are good that he would have uh, made great strides in ending the Cold War. And I think he eventually would have gotten the uh, Civil Rights Bill, which was his Civil Rights Bill, through Congress.
1: So early in the book, you have a great quote um, where Jackie Kennedy, I think someone mentioned that JFK was a great politician and she responded by saying he may be a fine politician, but do we know if he's a fine person? Right. And in writing biographies, we spend a lot of time with our subjects. I'm just curious in all of your time of working on the life of JFK, have you reached any conclusions in that regard? What do you think of him as a person?
0: Well, I think he's a very complicated person. (laughs) I think that, uh, He could be very cold to some people. He could be extremely warm. He was a surprisingly egalitarian man for someone who was as wealthy as he was, or someone who had had a valet to look after him ever since he'd uh, been in college, really. Um, In fact, uh, the head of the Secret Service once said that of all of the uh, presidents he'd known, including Truman, that uh, John F. Kennedy was surprisingly the most egalitarian. So there, were, there are surprises in Kennedy. He, he, he. Of course, had this voracious um, and somewhat twisted sexual appetite, um, and yet at the same time. While he was seeking sexual intimacy, um, he was somewhat standoffish and, and and didn't like physical contact with other people. It was hard for him the kind of handshaking, and he you never see him putting his arm around people. He was never seen even holding hands with Jackie until after the death of their uh, son Patrick. So. Um, uh, but at the same time, um, I think he was also what uh, Hugh Seide, who was the chief uh, correspondent for Time magazine and knew Kennedy well and wrote a biography about him, um, once said after he died that this was, uh, despite the, the kind of um, personal life, the womanizing and everything else, that, uh, that Kennedy was basically a serious man on a serious mission. And that, the, the at the heart of that mission, as Saidi said and as others have said, was a determination to prevent a nuclear war and to keep the United States out of war. Uh, Robert McNamara, who would later counsel, um, of course, Lyndon Johnson, and Lyndon Johnson would take his advice on Vietnam, whereas Kennedy um, did not take McNamara or George Bundy or the other advisors of his who wanted him to, Send combat units to to Vietnam he refused to do it uh but he but um uh he was uh, uh, basically or uh McNamara said once that Kennedy believed that the main job of American president was to keep the United States out of war, and this belief came from Kennedy's experiences in World War two I think the fact that his own uh, brother had died and was killed in combat in the war. Um, that this was his, he considered this mission. So there the things that are extremely um, uh, praiseworthy about Kennedy, that are very appealing about him, particularly compared to some of the men who followed him in in the uh, Oval Office. Uh, but at the same time, he has this kind of secret, this secret life, uh, the life of the womanizer um, that he kept uh, that he kept from people. His health was uh, also another of his secrets. Um, What he did was, which makes him such a, this all makes him such a fascinating subject for a biographer, because he had so many different compartments, Kennedy, uh, and he put people in these compartments. Ted Sorensen was his closest, uh, uh, one of his closest aide and and speechwriter, but he never once invited Ted Sorensen to dinner upstairs at his quarters in the White House. Extraordinary. And, and. Uh the same uh, Ben Bradley who was uh at the then at the Washington Post and Newsweek was invited up to uh, up to the White House all the time for dinner with his wife. Kennedy wanted to relax with him, but Bradley had told me in in several interviews and I believe him, that he had no idea about Kennedy's womanizing. He had absolutely he's absolutely no clue. So all of this makes Kennedy, I think, a fascinating subject, um, and the way I tried, what I tried to do was to look into all of these compartments at the same time, not just to restrict myself to a book about the, the Kennedy the man, but also do Kennedy the man, his personal life, his, Kennedy as president, Kennedy as politician, and by looking into all these compartments, trying to get a much more complete picture of, of, of Kennedy.
1: Mm-hmm. So we don't have as much time to talk about the book in depth as we usually do. So I wonder if just to give our listeners a taste of what to expect, if you could discuss where the book opens and sort of walk us through the different prisms of that with the death of Patrick Kennedy and, yeah. the, and the impact of that death on Kennedy's marriage, the presidency and the man himself.
0: Um, yeah. The, the death of his son was probably, uh, I mean, it was an incredibly traumatic event for Kennedy um, he wanted to have a large family. His brother Bobby, of course, had a huge family. Um, it was their third child. They had had one previous. Um, Jackie had had a, a miscarriage uh, with their first first child, um, and the the baby came prematurely, uh, seven or eight weeks prematurely. These days, if you had a, a baby that prematurely they would probably survive but then they didn't it was 50 50 and he flew up to cape cod where jackie gone into labor and uh, went to uh, children's hospital the baby was whisked up to a hospital in boston and spent the next 36 hours with him watching him uh patrick struggle to live and was actually holding patrick's hand when the baby died this was incredibly uh he burst into tears he came back to jackie's bedside and wept again uh, at the funeral. He tried to carry the coffin in his arms out of the out of the chapel uh came back to Jackie and wept again and finally said that, that they would have to watch their grief that they couldn't let their grief harm the work they had the 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 work they had to do that we have to do for the country he said and this this use of we made a huge impression on Jackie because she would never talked that way before uh, her mother said she was very uh, very impressed by this uh, thought it was a ch- signal of possible change in their relationship and there's evidence that they did become uh, much closer uh, after Patrick's death um, we see them holding hands for the first time in public um, a lot of their friends noticed a change in their relationship Di- Jackie talked about it to her friends uh, so it 's not just a kind of wishful thinking of people uh, you know wishing that they were had a happier marriage were about to have a happier marriage before Dallas happened no it was There was real stuff going on He for example, um, Kennedy rented a house in Newport for the summer of one thousand nine hundred and sixty four for a month because he knew Jackie liked it there she 'd grown up in Newport. He didn't like it as much as his family place in Cape Cod, but he thought it would please her, and he was going to give it to her, announce it as a surprise, I believe, over Christmas. Um, And it was that. And uh, we know from a recent memoir published by uh, one of his Jack uh, Kennedy's mistresses that after Patrick's death, although they had plenty of chance to resume their sexual relationship and travel together, that uh, he never touched her and was not interested in having sex anymore after Patrick's death. So, there was a lot going on in the personal relationship, and it stemmed i think uh, from uh began with this very traumatic uh, event uh, for both of them, but particularly for kennedy
1: do you think that had an effect on the presidency
0: oh i i it, it, it i i i do um in several places, I try to show in the book the how the personal and the presidential life. Kind of interacted and influenced each other. Uh, most specifically, in this case, um, I think it was about ten days after the um, after the death of Patrick uh, uh, Kennedy was up at um, the house they had rented up at Cape Cod near his parents' compound, and he was looking through all of the mail, um, the condolence letters that had come from friends, and he was his eyes were tearing up and. It was raining outside. He couldn't go out and sail or play golf. And Caroline was very upset by the baby's death and was acting up and sitting in his lap. Well, during this weekend, he, um, he got a request from uh, Avril Harriman and other people at the State Department uh, to respond to a telegram from Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., who was the new American ambassador in Saigon. had just arrived a day or two earlier. Uh, Lodge had been approached by some generals uh, who were plotting to overthrow President Diem, and they wanted to know what the position of the United States would be. And uh, basically, the telegram that Kennedy was asked to approve said that although we wouldn't help them, uh, if they succeeded in the coup, we would recognize their government and work with them and support them. It was more or less a green light for the coup. And this was the kind of decision that Kennedy had learned after the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, that the way to reach these kind of decisions is you want to get in a room with all your advisors and hash it out and have them argue and go back and forth. But this time, he was just so distracted by his grief that he approved the cable. It went out, and uh, when he got back to Washington two days later, uh, some of the other advisors who hadn't been consulted were horrified, and he tried to undo the damage he did to a certain extent, but uh, in the end, uh, three months later, there was a coup against uh, Diem, and certainly proving this telegram at first uh, had encouraged the generals and contributed to it.
1: So as the 50th anniversary of the assassination approaches next week, um, what do you see of JFK's legacy?
0: well the legacy there's a lots of aspects to it um, The first legacy uh, is perhaps that you and i wouldn't be uh speaking and i wouldn't be here um, if he hadn't uh, if he hadn't been president at the time of the, um, the, the Cuban missile crisis um, The other presidents just to quickly recap you know the the uh, at the time when we realized that the, when it was realized that the Russians were putting um, uh, nuclear missiles installing them in Cuba, um, the first at the first meetings, everyone in the XCOM, the Committee of uh, Advisors that Kennedy gathered, wanted to mount a preemptive attack, a military attack on the missile sites. Um, what we didn't know, what they didn't know, was that these missiles were fully operational at the time, and that the Russian generals had the authority to launch retaliatory uh, strikes with these missiles if they were attacked without even consulting Moscow. It almost certainly would have led to a nuclear exchange and perhaps and to a wider nuclear war. So Kennedy was the only one who didn't want to do this, uh, who refused to do it. Uh, He had uh, uh, incredible skepticism by then of the brass. He felt that they had the generals had misled him on the Cuban, um, on the uh, the Cuban Bay of Pigs operation, and he'd been a uh, you know a junior officer in World War II, and a lot of them had a somewhat jaundiced eye, through a jaundiced eye at the um, at the at the generals. So he was very skeptical, Uh, he rejected the advice of Curtis LeMay, the chief of the Air Force and others to mount an attack, in fact, Curtis LeMay accused him of being an appeaser and made reference to Munich at the time, but Kennedy held firm, so uh, certainly one of the legacies is is, uh, um, avoiding a nuclear war during the the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think this also contributed to the mourning at the time. Um, the other, the, the, several other things, uh, one of the uh, great legacies, of course, is the, just the, the fact that he won the presidency, that he was the first Catholic president. We can kind of for, we forget now what a big deal it was uh, to have a Catholic in the United States. I mean, there was tremendous opposition to him. Uh, certainly he uh, lost, well, probably lost more than he gained by being a Catholic. He won very narrowly. But what he did, his his election kind of kicked the door open, um, and behind him, other minorities in the United States who hadn't held uh, various offices uh, walked through it. Um, and Kennedy encouraged this. He appointed, for example, he appointed the uh, the first Polish American to a cabinet uh, cabinet position, John granowski So I think there was that um, that business. Of course, the space program, the Apollo program. He launched the. The uh, the moon mission uh, and whether, but it, it very well might have been a joint mission if he had uh, if he if he'd lived. Um, also, the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson were almost entirely originally Kennedy programs. Uh, Medicare was a Kennedy bill. The Civil Rights bill was a Kennedy bill. Um, would he have gotten them through? Probably not as quickly as Johnson, but I think you, the, the consensus is that he would have succeeded probably a year later after the, um, election. Um, and the war on poverty. Um the war on poverty was a Kennedy idea. He had developed it with Walter Heller, uh his economic advisor, in nineteen sixty three. It had been accelerated when Kennedy was uh had read an article about appalling poverty in Appalachia and Kentucky uh in October and had mounted an emergency program to get food and relief to the areas described in the New York Times article. And had um, told Heller he, he'd plotted out what he called his attack on poverty um, the day after uh, Dallas on november twenty third Walter Heller goes to see Lyndon Johnson and uh, fills him in on what Kennedy was planning to do about poverty and Johnson and asks him if he wants to go ahead with it. Johnson says, "I do want to go ahead with it, but let 's call it the war on poverty instead of the attack on poverty." So there's, uh, I, I think these are all, you know, certainly all aspects of his uh, of his detente, um, and the another thing that's also often forgotten in this country is. That Kennedy's uh, revision of the Immigration and Naturalization Act, where we had a terribly restrictive immigration laws, uh, went back to the 1920s, there were uh, racial preferences for Northern Europeans. Uh, only 100 Asians Chinese and Chinese and people from the subcontinent were allowed to immigrate to the United States every year. It was an appalling uh, uh, act, and and Kennedy proposed uh, ending it with his 1963 act. He didn't have a chance to get it through Congress, but it was passed in 1965 as as a memorial and tribute to Kennedy, pushed by Ted Kennedy through Congress. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that in the United States we have the uh, multiracial society that we have today. Why you see so many Indians and Asians have um, immigrated to the United States? It wasn't possible before Kennedy. Um, so I think there, uh, these are just some of the aspects of his um, of his legacy. Of course, everybody knows about the Peace Corps, um, but I think that's less, really less important than some of these other these other things. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about JFK's Last 100 Days. Any idea who you're going to be writing about next?
0: I'm uh, next writing about five Americans who risked their lives to save their Vietnamese friends in the final days of the Vietnam War.
1: Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. I've been talking today with Thurston Clark about JFK's Last 100 Days. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.